If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. It's a verse that has been referred to already. I commend what has been said about it already. Uh, but I want to look at this verse and then just a few others around it uh, back in Hebrews 12, 14, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, in Ephesians 4, in 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 5. We're going to look at a few of these passages because I want you to think for a few moments about what church discipline does, what it's for. You've been encouraged and exhorted to the practice of biblical church discipline. A case has been made to persuade you that this is an important, a necessary, a faithful biblical thing to do. I want you to think sort of at the 30,000 uh, foot level, what, what does this do? What's it for? Now there, that question has actually been being answered over the last two days. And I'm going to try and draw together some of those themes. Let me go ahead and tell you what three things in particular I'm going to uh, try and persuade you of. I'm going to argue that the Lord uses church discipline to cultivate respect, godliness, and peace in a congregation. To cultivate respect, godliness, and peace in the congregation. That's really going to be the three-point outline of my sermon. But before we get there, I'm, I want to show you very quickly seven points in Hebrews 13, 17. Now, literally, that could be a sermon in and of itself. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to rifle through those seven points just because I want you to see some very important principles for church life that come out of that one little verse. And before we read, let's pray and ask for God's help and blessing. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We need your word as much as we need food. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Your word is truth. Sanctify us with your truth. Speak, Lord, your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, we read these words, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. Isn't it interesting at the end of this great letter, in many ways, the Leviticus of the New Covenant, uh, the New Covenant commentary on Jesus' fulfillment of the whole Old Covenant sacrificial system comes this exhortation to a congregation about how it is to relate to and respond to its leaders. And in that exhortation, we learn a lot actually about church discipline. I'd like you to see seven things very quickly from this verse, and then we're going to go back and look at those three overarching points together for a few minutes this morning. The first thing you learn from Hebrews 13 and 17 is that obedience and submission 
are part of the Christian life. Now, those, those things are strange to the ears of our culture. Our, our culture doesn't cotton up to obedience and submission. I remember when uh, the study of Islam became more generally popular after 2011, one of the great debates was what does Islam mean? Does it mean peace or does it mean submission? And of course, those most opposed to Islam wanted to emphasize that it meant submission and that was, that was portrayed to Americans in a very negative light. But Christianity has as much to say about submission as Islam does. And this verse, just listen to it, obey your leaders and submit to them. It assumes that obedience and submission is a part of the Christian life. Two, Christian leadership in the local church is plural. Christian leadership in the local church is, is plural. It does not say obey your leader and submit to him. It says obey your leaders and submit to them. So, and, and by the way, you see this in every aspect of the New Testament. Local church leadership is always plural. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Third, we learn here that Christians are to humbly receive and follow the biblical teaching and exhortation of their leaders. Obey your leaders is a, is a phrase that relates directly to the teaching of those leaders. We'll see that, by the way, from Jesus' own great commission. So Christians receive and follow the biblical teaching and exhortation of their leaders. That's what the phrase, obey your leaders, primarily refers to. Fourth, Christians will show due deference to and follow the godly leadership of their shepherds. Submit to them is the second part of the phrase. Obey your leaders and submit to them. So there will be a due deference to and a following of the godly leadership of shepherds in a local congregation. Fifth, Christian leaders are called to a protective watchfulness over the souls of their people. Listen to the task that they're given. What are they doing? They are keeping watch over your souls. So their leadership is not an exercise of authority for their sake, it's an exercise of authority for your sake. And their ultimate goal is to watch over your everlasting soul. The, the totality of their leadership is to be directed to your eternal best interests. That's so important. In a, in a, we live in an era where people are skeptical of power because they've seen so much abuse of power. They're skeptical of leadership in the church and of discipline because they've seen abuse of it. And so one of the things as we seek to be biblical that's so important in this area is to show that power, authority, leadership in the church is always for the well-being of the flock, never for the fleecing of the sheep, never for the abuse of Christ's lambs, always for the well-being of God's people. They're keeping watch over your souls. Sixth, notice as well they are accountable to God. 
Christian leaders are accountable to God. They are watching over your souls as those who will have to give an account. On the last day, every Christian leader will stand before God and give account for our service of Christ she. No wonder James says, let not many of you become teachers. So those who have authority are placed under a special accountability. And then finally, those leaders are to have joy in that ministry and the congregation is to be concerned for them to have joy in that ministry. Listen to the language. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, isn't it interesting that as the author of Hebrews addresses this congregation about leaders and about their task, he speaks to the congregation and he says to them, Make this easy for them. <laughs> Make them want to do this. Make them to have joy in this and not groan and complain and dread this particular responsibility. You be thinking about them having joy in doing this. Now, all of those things speak to the dynamics of government and discipline in the life of the local congregation. But I want to pull back and I want to look at three things that we learn from Hebrews 13, 17 and also a couple of other passages about how the Lord cultivates respect, godliness, and peace in a congregation through church discipline. The Lord invented church discipline to do a number of things in the life of individual Christians and the congregation. First, he invented church discipline to cultivate a spirit of respect for God-ordained spiritual authority, which is actually vital to our eternal well-being. He invented it to cultivate a spirit of respect for God-ordained spiritual authority. Secondly, he appointed it, he invented it to help us individually and collectively, personally and congregationally, in the pursuit of holiness. And finally, the Lord invented church discipline to promote peace in the life of the congregation. Church discipline is important for peace and unity and communion in the life of the local congregation. So let's look at these things together. Uh, we see in Hebrews 13, 17, that God's word enjoins, God's word commands, and his spirit enables a glad and willing respect for the elders and a joyful acknowledgement and embrace of their spiritual leadership as the appointed shepherds of his flock. That's really what we've seen in that sort of seven-point outline, the specific details of that relationship. God wants the congregation to have a glad and willing respect for the elders. Isn't it interesting? 
He doesn't address the elders to say how the congregation is to relate to him. He addresses the congregation in how they are to relate to the elders, which shows that we're all in this together, and it shows that he wants us to want to do this. He doesn't want us forced into this. He wants us to want to do this. It's a glad and willing respect that he wants us to give, not a grudging respect, not a reluctant uh, respect, but a respect that is willingly offered by the congregation. And so he speaks directly to the congregation and he calls on them to acknowledge the spiritual authority of the elders, to embrace their spiritual leadership as God's appointed shepherds. Now, my friends, this, we need to realize how strange this is because out in our culture, outside of the military and parenting, our culture is very uncomfortable with using the language of obedience especially between adults. It is very unusual to hear talk of an adult being asked to obey another adult. And this passage reminds us how alien our culture's outlook is from the New Testament. And so it isn't surprising, is it, that God would use the structures of elder shepherds in their leading and disciplining of the church to cultivate a spirit of respect for God-ordained authority that's actually alien to our culture. I mean, all of us want to have it our way. All of us want to do it our way. That's not just an American thing. That's a sinful human thing. And the very structures that he weaves into the life of the congregation with godly shepherd teachers who are called to protect and guide the flock and a process of discipline whereby erring sheep are reclaimed, these things are designed to cultivate a spirit of respect for God-ordained authority in the church. And we need to think about that just a little bit. Because again, our culture doesn't like the language of obedience and submission. Of course, one of the, one of the areas where this is resented most is in marriage. You know, if, if your church is still using the older marriage vows, I guarantee you, you've had conversations with, with brides and with mothers-in-law about what do you mean obey? What do you mean submit? Because it, it feels, it may feel demeaning. It may feel oppressive. It may feel like it's setting the stage for abuse in our culture. And one of the things that I regularly remind brides that I'm talking with prior to a marriage is before I am allowed by the Presbyterian Church in America to ask a woman in a marriage ceremony to submit to her husband, I have to have vowed twice to submit myself. In my membership vows, as a member in the Presbyterian Church in America, I had to vow this vow. In answer to the question, do you submit yourself 
to the government and discipline of the church and promise to practice its purity and peace? I have had to answer, I do. And then when I became an elder in the church, I had to answer this question. Do you submit yourself to your brethren in the Lord? So before I was ever allowed in a marriage ceremony to ask a bride to submit to her husband, I had to vow twice that I was in submission. Submission is part and parcel of the whole of the Christian life. It isn't for brides. It's for every Christian. Every Christian is called a submission. As that great theologian of the age, Bob Dylan, once said, we all got to serve somebody. You may serve the devil or you may serve the Lord, but we all got to serve somebody. Submission is a part of the Christian life. And church discipline and the governance of the church uh, is, is designed to cultivate in us a respect for that God-appointed spiritual authority. And my friends, think about this in regard to the teaching of the church. I just made the argument that the language obey your leaders here actually refers to responding to their teaching. Now, why did I say that? Because of what Jesus says in the Great Commission. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 28? I know most of you don't need to because you've got it memorized. But even if you're just running it through in your mind right now, pause and go slowly and remember what Jesus says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Isn't it interesting that the discipleship there that Jesus specifies is not teach them to believe all the things that I have taught, but teach them to obey all the things that I have commanded. If you want to make a disciple of Jesus, he can't simply believe the things that Jesus taught and not do the things that Jesus commanded. And so the language in Hebrews 13, 17, I'm pretty sure is responding to the teachers of the church appointed by God to teach what Jesus commanded. And what is the posture of the congregation to be to that teaching? They are to obey it. They're not just to hear it and say, good sermon preacher. They're not just to believe it. Okay, I think I believe that preacher. They're to do it. So when Jesus' word is faithfully proclaimed, the response of the congregation to that is to be obedience. That's why Jesus is always saying, don't be a hearer only of the word, but be a doer. He says this over and over again. And Hebrews 13, 17 is reflecting that. What's the proper response when your pastor gets up and expounds the Word of God faithfully? To obey what has been preached. But we don't think of it that way. We don't, we don't think of hearing and responding to sermons as an act of obedience. The author of Hebrews did. Jesus did. That, that's, that's another place where obedience just fits into the Christian life. Obedience is not a four-letter word. 
Uh, obedience and submission is a wonderful, regular, normal part of the Christian life. I'm very, very thankful for parents who enforced in my heart and mind early a respect for spiritual authority. And they did it in, in lots of different ways. Um, they did it whether I was in school, they did it in church. I remember uh, I, I was playing on a church league baseball team and the referee didn't show up and so the pastor for the local church where we were playing went out and very kindly umpired the game and in my humble opinion didn't do a very good job of it and um, i let my mother know as i came in the door that i didn't think very much of the job that he had done and uh, my mother said you know you're talking about a minister now you know say what you will, uh, this Hebrews 13, 17 doesn't give ministers license to be bad umpires. That's not my point. <laughs> but what her, when my mother said that, it reminded me that I was speaking disrespectfully about a minister of the Word of God. And that was the, the regular kind of thing that, that my parents just worked into my heart uh, as, as a young man so that I had a proper respect for spiritual authority in the life of the church. That happens and is so important in the context of church discipline. Isn't it interesting in Matthew 8 9, when Jesus encounters that centurion? You remember what the centurion says about Jesus? He says, I, you know, I'm just like you. I am a man. Notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, I am a man with authority. He doesn't say, I'm a man in authority. He says, I'm a man under authority, just like you, Jesus. I, I perceive that you're a man under authority. And then he proceeds to say, and that means that I tell people go and they go and come and they come and do and they do. Isn't that interesting? I'm under authority and I tell people to do things. Well, and if, if you're a Roman centurion, that, that, there, there's, that makes perfect sense because you are under authority. And he recognized that Jesus was doing what he was doing, not on his own, but from his Father's authority. And Jesus himself talked to his disciples about that. You remember he said on one occasion, when they said to him, don't you want us to bring you some food? He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying it's like spreading a seven-course meal in front of me for me to get to do what my Father has commanded me to do. I love obeying what my Father has commissioned me to do. So even Jesus, in his redemptive work in the incarnation, obeyed. And the author of Hebrews emphasizes that. He learned obedience through that which he suffered. So ob obedience is a normal an important part of the Christian life and the very practice of church discipline rightly reinforces that spiritual respect for authority and for that, that understanding of the role of obedience in the Christian life. There's a lot of confusion about obedience today. There are people who will teach, if you understand grace, you will understand that there's no role for obedience in the Christian life anymore. There, there are many, many people teaching variations of that truth. I wonder what New Testament they've read. 
I wonder what Jesus they follow. Jesus certainly knew a thing or two about grace. Paul knew a thing or two about grace. The author of Hebrews, the whole book has been about the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. And yet obedience finds a natural and normal and essential part in the Christian life. Church discipline cultivates that, reinforces that. There, there are times when the congregation has to recognize, why did the elders bring this to us? And, and there has to be a spirit of deference. The elders are wise. They wouldn't have brought this to us for our consideration if they hadn't done so prayerfully and carefully and biblically. They brought this to us because they're good shepherds. And the, the congregation is cultivated in an appropriate respect for spiritual authority. Second, God also enjoins, he commands and his spirit enables a glad and willing pursuit of personal and congregational purity through the shepherding ministry of the leaders of the flock. And that's made so clear in Paul's teaching. Would you turn to two places? Turn back to Ephesians chapter 4 when Paul is explaining the gifts that Jesus has given to the church. He gave apostles and prophets and the evangelists and shepherds and teachers to what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. So there, Paul says, what is the ministry of the pastor teacher in the church? The, the maturation, the growth in godliness, the growth in Christ-likeness of the flock. That's what we're here for. Look at another passage. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says what ministry is, is designed to uh, keep from happening. And then in verse 5, he tells you what ministry is supposed to make happen. And he puts it this way in verse 5. The aim of our charge, the goal of our instruction, the, the thing that I'm wanting to see produced by my ministry as a leader, as a shepherd of the flock is... Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So my teaching ministry, my shepherding ministry is all designed to produce deep-rooted biblical Christian love that flows from a, a, a good conscience, a pure heart, and a sincere faith. So he's wanting to see growth in godliness, and that's consistent with what the author of Hebrews has said. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, where he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So church discipline is designed to cultivate the personal and congregational pursuit of godliness. 
Godly, growing Christians pursue holiness, personally and congregationally. And by the way, it's interesting, most of Paul's exhortations to holiness in the New Testament are in the congregational setting. In, in other words, there are more exhortations to things that cannot be done without relationship to other Christians than there are to things that we're to do personally, privately, individually. So much of the exhortation to godliness in the New Testament is in relationship to one another. In other words, the Christian life cannot be lived non-congregationally. Or to put it positively, the Christian life is to be lived congregationally. It can't be lived without that one-anothering congregational component. You can't mature without relating to others in the context of mutual accountability in the local congregation. And church discipline is designed to cultivate that. So that believers, personally and congregationally, endeavor to grow in grace and not to bring sin and judgment into the camp of God's people. Third and finally, God's word enjoins, God's word commands, and his spirit enables a glad and willing self-exertion for the peace of the church through church discipline. Church discipline serves not only to cultivate a spirit of respect for spiritual authority in the church, not only to cultivate personal and congregational holiness, it serves to cultivate a glad and willing self-exertion for the peace of the church. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. We could look at many passages like this. Look at verses 8 and 9. Here's Peter giving this exhortation to Christians. To sum up, 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble. By the way, did you notice all of those exhortations? Not one of them can be done in isolation. Every single one of them requires other people that you're growing in grace with. They require a congregation. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Paul talked about this back in Ephesians uh, 4, 11 to 14. Peter's talking about it here. He's talking about the congregation recognizing that it has a major role in promoting peace, harmony, and unity in that local congregation. The older that I have grown, the more I have come to understand that peace and unity do not just happen. You don't ever accidentally veer into peace and unity in the church. It takes work because we are a collection of sinners. Yes, redeemed sinners. Praise God. Yes, new creations by the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, born again by the regenerating work of the third person of the Trinity. Yes, praise God. But still sinners. We, we tell people the very first question that people have to join, have to answer when they join First Presbyterian Church is this one. 
Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope save in his sovereign mercy? Do you? And before I, before I ask that question, I said, do you understand that we don't allow good people to join First Presbyterian Church? Only sinners are allowed to join First Presbyterian Church. So if you're good people, you can't join here. Now, blood-bought sinners, yes. Christ-believing, gospel-believing sinners, yes. Transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, being renewed uh, according to His image, uh, being worked on by the Holy Spirit so that we grow in grace, yes. But we will still sin against one another. In fact, some of the hardest things that I've ever seen to be overcome in the life of a local church are unwitting, unintentional offenses committed by one Christian against another, especially over a duration of time. It takes a lot to live together in peace and unity. If your congregation doesn't realize its own responsibility to that end, it will never happen. Church discipline reminds the congregation of the value of that and of their personal involvement in pursuing that. Church discipline cultivates respect. It cultivates the pursuit of godliness. It cultivates peace and unity in a congregation. Charles Simeon is one of my favorite preachers, and he preached on this text. And when he gets to the end of his sermon, he basically asks for a moment of personal privilege to address the congregation. These are his final words in his sermon on Hebrews 13, 17. Here's what he says. How long we shall stand in our present relation to one another? God alone knows. He's speaking to his own congregation. I don't know how long I'll be your pastor. I don't know how long you'll be my flock. God only knows that. But this we know, that I must give up an account to God of my labors, as you also must of your improvement of them. So I'm going to give an account for how I serve you. You're going to give an account of what you did with what I offered in service of you. Oh, that I may be found faithful, and may you so also improve my ministry that I may give up an account of you with joy and not with grief. Imagine not your work done when you have heard the word delivered to you. In reality, both your work and mine is then just begun. I've preached the word faithfully. You've heard the word believingly. Your job is not done, it's just begun. And church discipline is there to work that truth into the bones and life of the congregation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together in your word. I pray that brothers and sisters here would be encouraged to live life in the local church the Bible way. In Jesus' name, amen.